Hey, listeners. Deathbed Confessions will be off next week for the Thanksgiving holiday. We'll be back with a new episode on December 1st. See you then. Friday, November 22nd, 1963, is a day like no other in history. Those who were alive then, and old enough to register these things, will always remember what they were doing, the day JFK was killed. In Dallas, Texas, the streets are lined with cheering crowds as the president's motorcade progresses slowly through the city. Kennedy is seated in the back of an open-top 1961 Lincoln Continental limousine. The first lady, Jackie Kennedy, is there by his side. Mrs. Kennedy is dressed in a powder pink suit and matching pillbox hat. It's said to be one of her husband's favorite outfits of hers. In the same car, side by side in front of the Kennedys, are the governor of Texas, John Connolly, and his wife, Nellie. Secret Service agents Roy Kellerman and Bill Greer occupy the front seats, with Greer driving. Riding in the follow-up car is Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson and his wife, Lady Bird. The route takes the motorcade north along Houston Street before turning left into Elm Street through Dealey Plaza. The corner is overlooked by three tall buildings. The Dallas County Records and Criminal Courts, the Daltex Building, and the seven-story Texas School Book Depository. This last building has a clear view of the motorcade as it slows to a crawl to take the sharp turn into Dealey Plaza. Ahead of the motorcade now is a grass bank with a fence along the top of it. It will go down in history as the Grassy Knoll. Photographs taken minutes before the first shot is fired show the presidential party happy and at ease as they bask in the warmth of the city's welcome. At one point, Nellie Connolly turns back to the president and says, Mr. President, you can't say that Dallas doesn't love you. What happens next will be contested for decades to come. Some witnesses claim they hear three shots ring out. Others will say there are more. President Kennedy's hands go up to clutch his throat as he cries out, My God, I'm hit! This is the first shot. The Secret Service driver Greer seems to panic, slowing the car and looking back at the stricken president. While he hesitates, the second shot is fired. Governor Connolly feels himself hit. My God, they are trying to kill us all! He cries before collapsing onto his wife. At 12.30 p.m. Central Standard Time, a third shot blows apart the president's head. The first lady's powder pink suit is stained red. The horror of the situation overwhelms her. She clambers out the back of the open-top car onto the trunk. Secret Service agent Clint Hill races forward from the car behind, leaps on the presidential limousine, and encourages Jackie Kennedy back inside, sheltering her with his body. He shouts, Go! Go! At last, Agent Greer comes to his senses. He hits the gas and the limo finally speeds away. The President and Governor Connolly are rushed to Dallas's Parkland Hospital, where at 1 p.m., JFK will be pronounced dead. Connolly survives despite gunshot wounds in the chest, wrist, and thigh. Police storm the Texas School Book Depository. At a six-floor window, they find a sniper's nest, constructed from boxes, capable of shielding a gunman from the view of a casual observer inside. They also find three discharged cartridges by the window and a discarded rifle with a telescopic sight. 
Sometime between 1 and 1.15, that's to say only minutes after President Kennedy has been declared dead, a second murder takes place. Police officer J.D. Tippett is gunned down as he steps out of his patrol car to talk to a suspect. Soon after, police surround a movie theater in the Oak Cliff area of Dallas after staff report a suspicious man sneaking in without paying. At around 1.50, a man is arrested inside the theater. He pulls a gun but is disarmed after it fails to fire. The man's name is Lee Harvey Oswald. He is suspected of killing both the president and Officer Tippett. For decades, conspiracy theorists have speculated that Oswald was part of a CIA plot to kill Kennedy. In 2003, believing he's about to die, a former CIA operative called E. Howard Hunt will insist that it's all true. And the reason he gives for his certainty is that he himself was approached to take part. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secrets off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of a president, a man who is adored by millions of ordinary people and hated by some of the most powerful men in the world. A man whose enemies would like to see him dead, and whose friends could not protect him. It's about the day President Kennedy came to win over the people of Dallas, only to be shot dead in front of adoring crowds. It's about the man accused of that shocking crime, Lee Harvey Oswald, and the man accused of killing him, Jack Ruby. It's also the story of other men, men whose names are less well-known, men who operate in the shadows and whose skill sets include assassination and other dark acts. It's about the blunders that may have allowed Oswald to kill the president and the possibility that a wider conspiracy may have helped him. A conspiracy that goes right to the top. It's a story in which nothing is certain and anything is possible. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the turn it up to 11 NBA playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight 
starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Lee Harvey Oswald is an employee of the Texas School Book Depository. The police will later assert that he is the owner of a rifle identical to the one they have recovered. They will discover photographs of him posing with a weapon in his back garden. Oswald is the only suspect in the murder of John F. Kennedy. He proclaims his innocence, at one point shouting to reporters, I am just a patsy. In other words, a hapless fall guy set up to take the blame for someone else's crime. Then, just 48 hours after his arrest, Lee Harvey Oswald is himself murdered. The fatal shooting takes place in the basement of the Dallas police station as Oswald is let out in front of reporters. His killer is a nightclub owner with gangland connections called Jack Ruby. Ruby will maintain that he shot Oswald in order to spare Jackie Kennedy the ordeal of sitting through a trial. Others insist that the real reason for the killing is to ensure Oswald's silence. E. Howard Hunt's written account, made when he thought he was dying, seems to bear this out. If Hunt is to be believed, the real perpetrators were a group of CIA agents operating under the orders of the man who rode in the car behind JFK that day. Vice President Lyndon B. Johnson. It's a shocking allegation. To find out if there's any truth to it, let's take a closer look at the background to that fatal day. Many of JFK's close aides advised him against visiting Dallas. Although Kennedy is often presented as a universally popular president, he was elected by an extremely narrow margin. Parts of the country remain impervious to his movie star good looks and Irish charm, as well as opposed to his civil rights agenda. Dallas is one of the most hostile centers of political opposition. Kennedy's advisors expect protests of the kind that greeted former Democratic presidential candidate Adlai Stevenson only a month before. Stevenson was spat at and hit with a placard by a protester. But the next year, 1964 will be an election year. If Kennedy is to be re-elected, he needs to win support in previously unfriendly cities, hence the trip to Dallas. JFK is riding straight into enemy territory. When he was elected in 1960, Kennedy chose as his running mate the Texan Lyndon B. Johnson, whose support helped him carry the largely segregationist Southern state. But there are rumors that he plans to drop Johnson from the ticket for 1964. Allegations of corruption have dogged Johnson, threatening to embroil his vice presidency, and therefore Kennedy's presidency, in scandal. There is no love lost between Kennedy and his VP. But for now, Kennedy needs Johnson and continues to back him in public. The vice president is conspicuously there in the motorcade, riding in the car behind the president's. A week after her husband is killed, Jackie Kennedy will give an interview to Life magazine in which she compares her husband's time in the White House to the legendary court of King Arthur. She quotes a line from JFK's favorite musical. Don't let it be forgot that once there was a spot for one brief shining moment that was known as Camelot. But if the Kennedy White House was Camelot, it was, perhaps, a Camelot with a dark side. Claims that John Kennedy's father, Joseph Kennedy Sr., had links to organized crime, 
have long tarnished the Kennedy name in the eyes of some. It has even been alleged that Joseph Kennedy used his influence with Chicago outfit boss Sam Giancana to get his son elected. The accusation being that Giancana delivered the crucial state of Illinois for Kennedy. These allegations are accepted as fact by many, passed on unchallenged from one internet forum to the next. But they are disputed by mob historians such as John J. Binder. Binder has examined the sources carefully and is convinced that there is simply no credible evidence that Joseph Kennedy was a bootlegger, as is often claimed, or that the Chicago mob were able to influence the 1960 presidential election, even if they'd wanted to. In fact, Binder convincingly argues that the mob would not have wanted Kennedy elected. Because by the time of JFK's candidacy, his brother Bobby was already making a name for himself as an anti-organized crime campaigner. Through his work on the Senate's McClellan Committee from 1957 to 1959, he had made many dangerous enemies, including Teamsters Union boss Jimmy Hoffa. When John Kennedy was elected president, he appointed his brother Bobby as attorney general. Bobby Kennedy continued his anti-mob campaigning, effectively declaring war on organized crime. But it did not begin then. So the theory that JFK was killed by the mob because they felt betrayed after all they had done to get him elected doesn't quite stack up. Having said that, it is still possible that mob leaders wanted to close down the Kennedy brothers' aggressive investigations into their activities and would go to any lengths to do so. Bobby has stirred up a hornet's nest. Robert Kennedy is burdened with guilt over his brother's assassination. He blames himself believing that his brother may have been killed in revenge for something he, Bobby, has done. In particular, he considers the possibility that the mob are behind it. I knew they'd get one of us. I thought it would be me. He confides to an aide just an hour after he has been informed of the president's death. It can be argued that when it comes to the assassination of JFK, Robert Kennedy is the world's first conspiracy theorist. There may be good reason for this, because he knows better than most what the Kennedy administration was mixed up with. One of Bobby's chief suspects in his brother's murder is Jimmy Hoffa, the corrupt Teamsters boss who had been a target of his investigations. Bobby knows that Hoffa hates him. A Teamsters insider who became an FBI informant claims he overheard Hoffa saying, I've got to do something about that son of a bitch Bobby Kennedy. He's got to go. But would Hoffa act against the president? According to Hoffa's lawyer, Frank Regano, the answer is yes. In his autobiography, Mob Lawyer, Regano claims that Hoffa effectively took out a contract on JFK. As well as representing Hoffa, Regano was also lawyer to the Florida-based mafia boss, Santo Traficante Jr. He tells how, in summer 1963, Hoffa gives him a message to pass to Traficante. It's time to kill the president. Regano passes the message on, though he claims he treated it as a joke. To his surprise, Traficante and his henchmen seem to take it seriously. Many years later, in March 1987, Regano is driving a dying Traficante around Tampa, Florida. His client confides to him, We shouldn't have killed Giovanni. We should have killed Bobby. Remember, though, that Regano is making these claims in an autobiography, from which he hopes to profit not in a court of law, where he would be sworn to tell the truth. He offers no proof that the conversations took place. What's more, his book came out in 1994, 
seven years after Traficante's death. So his former client is not around to challenge the allegations. However, it is true that Traficante had reasons of his own for hating Kennedy. Before the revolution in Cuba, Traficante had been raking in millions from his casino operations in Havana. That all ended when Castro came to power. Traficante would have been one of many blaming Kennedy for the bungled attempt to oust the communists in 1961. Another mobster who had been the target of Bobby Kennedy's zeal is New Orleans capo Carlos Marcelo, who also has links to Hoffa and Traficante. FBI files released in 1992 show that Marcelo confessed to a cellmate that he had JFK killed. But it's hard to know how much credence to place on prison cell confessions. It could easily be a case of one prisoner trying to impress another. That said, according to Frank Regano's autobiography, Marcelo's involvement in the plot was confirmed by Traficante. There is one other mob boss whose potential involvement in the murder of JFK is often mooted in conspiracy theory circles. This is Sam Giancana. We looked at his alleged role in getting Kennedy elected earlier. There may have been more to Giancana's connection to Kennedy than that, however. It has been claimed that Kennedy and Giancana shared a mistress. In her 1977 memoir, socialite Judith Exner reveals an 18-month affair with JFK, begun while he was a senator and continuing after he is president. Exner also claims she had an overlapping relationship with Sam Giancana. It hardly seems possible that the president of the United States and one of America's most notorious and vicious gangland bosses could be sleeping with the same woman. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Kennedy and John Connor had a mutual friend, Frank Sinatra. And it seems Sinatra introduced Exner to both JFK and John Connor. It's difficult to know what to make of this connection, or if claims that Kennedy and John Connor shared other mistresses besides Exner. We certainly know that JFK was unfaithful to his wife. One of the most famous names linked to his is the Hollywood star Marilyn Monroe. His sexual indiscretions may have exposed him to blackmail. But would it have given a jealous Giancana motive to murder his rival? Far more likely that he would have tried to use Exner's relationship with the president to extract information. Or maybe Giancana just got a kick from it. There's one other intriguing piece of evidence that raises the possibility of gangland involvement in JFK's murder. The phone records of Jack Ruby, the man who killed Lee Harvey Oswald. In the weeks before President Kennedy's assassination, Ruby made an extraordinary number of long-distance calls. The records show that he called various figures from the criminal underworld, 
including two of Hoffa's known associates, Robert Barney Baker and Murray Dusty Miller. He also spoke to one of Marcella's lieutenants and a man with ties to Traficante. We don't know what was discussed on these calls. One thing we do know is that Bobby Kennedy takes seriously the possibility that the mob was behind his brother's death. So much so that on the very afternoon of JFK's murder, he picks up the phone and calls a Chicago lawyer named Julius Drasnin. According to the Boston Globe, Bobby knew Drasnin had impeccable mob sources, so he asked him to do some digging to determine if there had been any mafia involvement in the assassination. Word eventually comes back from Drasnin. There was nothing. It's unlikely that Bobby is reassured, because at the same time as he is pursuing this line of investigation, he is forced to consider a far more troubling possibility than a simple gangland hit. That the CIA is responsible for murdering his brother. Even worse, that the CIA may have been working in league with the mafia. At first sight, this may seem like one of the most far-fetched conspiracy theories out there. But bear in mind that the first person to give it serious consideration is Robert Kennedy, at the time U.S. Attorney General. Not only that, Robert Kennedy knows better than most what the CIA is capable of. As so often in the supposed plots around JFK's assassination, it all starts in Cuba. In the last episode, we looked into the CIA's role in the botched plan to use anti-communist Cuban exiles to invade Cuba and bring down Castro's regime. At the time, CIA diehards like E. Howard Hunt blamed President Kennedy for the failure of the Bay of Pigs operation. In turn, Kennedy blamed the CIA. But despite JFK's reported vow to break up the CIA, the agency continued to exist. It also continued to wage a secret war on Cuba, known as Operation Mongoose. The aim of the operation was regime change, brought about by the assassination of Fidel Castro. As Attorney General, Robert Kennedy was given the task of bringing the potentially rogue organization to heel. He insisted on regular briefings at CIA headquarters in Langley. One morning in 1962, he is briefed that the CIA had recruited mafia leaders with interests in Cuba to help with Operation Mongoose. Sam Giancana is among the names mentioned. To put it bluntly, the CIA's plan is to subcontract the killing of Castro to mafia hitmen. Bobby Kennedy is reputedly shocked. And yet, he was first told that the CIA was involved in dirty business with Sam Giancana a year earlier in a memo from FBI Chief J. Edgar Hoover. So either it slipped his mind, or the very public anti-crime crusader turned a blind eye to this unholy alliance. Because a year after that memo, the CIA is still doing business with the mafia. To be fair to Robert Kennedy, his objection is recorded in the CIA summary of the briefing. It is hardly a stinging rebuke. He merely says, I trust that if you ever try to do business with organized crime again, with gangsters, you will let the attorney general know. The fact is, Robert Kennedy knew the CIA was trying to kill Castro, and he knew that they were pursuing any and all means to achieve their aim. But he also knows how much certain elements within the CIA hated his brother. That's why, on the day of JFK's murder, Bobby summons the director of the CIA, John McCone, to Hickory Hill, 
his huge Civil War-era home in Virginia. The two men take a walk around the grounds. McCone expresses his condolences. When they are out of hearing of the Secret Service agents, Bobby Kennedy comes straight to the point. He asks McCone outright if the CIA killed the president. It's an extraordinary question. It shows that the conspiracy theory that will one day take the internet by storm was first voiced by Bobby Kennedy on November 22, 1963, the very day that JFK is killed. Understandably, McCone is taken aback. He swears that the CIA had nothing to do with JFK's death. But how can we, or Robert Kennedy, believe him? After all, he would say that, wouldn't he? According to Robert Kennedy, I asked the question in a way that he couldn't lie to me. When McCone gives his version of the exchange, we begin to understand what Robert Kennedy means by this. McCone says that he gave his word as a man of faith. Like Robert Kennedy, he is a practicing Roman Catholic. The attorney general has no choice but to believe him. John McCone may well have been telling the truth, as he understood it, but it's possible he simply wasn't in possession of the full facts. McCone was a Kennedy appointee. The previous director of the CIA, Alan Dulles, was ousted by the president after the Bay of Pigs fiasco in Cuba. Others who had been involved in the same operation lost their jobs in the same purge. Some, like E. Howard Hunt, were demoted. They remained inside the CIA still loyal to Dulles, an agency within an agency. And they held a massive grudge against the Kennedy brothers, JFK especially. For men like this, John McCone will always be an outsider. If there is a secret plot within the CIA to remove President Kennedy, McCone would be the last person to hear about it. No matter how sincere he is, McCone's reassurances to Bobby Kennedy are meaningless. As we have already noted, the possibility of CIA involvement in JFK's murder revolves around the issue of Cuba. Bobby Kennedy knows that the CIA worked with anti-Castro Cubans during the Bay of Pigs operation. It's a reasonable assumption that they will work together again. For example, Cubans clearly have a role to play in Operation Mongoose, the plan to assassinate Castro and overthrow his regime. In fact, it will later emerge that on the very day JFK is assassinated, a CIA officer is in Paris meeting with an anti-Castro Cuban agent. In a scene reminiscent of Q briefing James Bond on his latest gadget, the CIA operative will hand over a modified ballpoint pen. The pen has been fitted with a hypodermic needle and can be loaded with deadly poison. All the Cuban assassin has to do is get close enough to Castro to inject him with a fatal dose. The incident may seem a little implausible, even laughable, but the source is no less than the CIA's own internal watchdog, the Inspector General. And it's by no means the most outlandish plot that the Inspector General uncovered. Other potential murder weapons include an exploding cigar and a poisoned wetsuit. Bobby Kennedy will have known that initiatives like this are being put into action. He will also have known the resentment felt against his brother by certain elements of the exiled Cuban community. Many Cubans lost their homes and businesses in the communist revolution. Forced into exile, they settled mainly in Florida, where they longed for a return to their homeland. For some of these exiles, their hatred of communism is matched only by their hatred of President Kennedy, 
the man they blame for the failure of their bid to take back the island. So far, Bobby Kennedy has three possible groups of suspect on his list. Organized crime, the CIA, militant anti-Castro Cuban exiles. There is another possibility that he must consider, that a foreign power had his brother killed. There are two main candidate countries, Soviet Russia, led by Premier Nikita Khrushchev, and Cuba, led by President Fidel Castro. Either possibility is terrifying. On November 29, 1963, just a week after the murder of JFK, President Lyndon Johnson summons his Chief Justice, Earl Warren, to the White House for an urgent meeting. It is Johnson's intention to set up a commission to investigate the assassination of his predecessor. He wants Warren to head it, but the Chief Justice is reluctant. President Johnson outlines the issues facing them in his inimitable Texan style. Now these wild people are charged and Khrushchev killed Kennedy, and Castro killed Kennedy, and everybody else killed Kennedy. To make matters worse, rumors are circulating that Lee Harvey Oswald received $6,500 from the Castro government to carry out the hit. The way Johnson sees it, if people believe that Lee Harvey Oswald was acting as an agent of either Russia or Cuba, it will inevitably drag America into war, a war that could easily escalate into a nuclear Armageddon. Johnson spells it out. If Khrushchev moved on us, he could kill 39 million in an hour, and we could kill 100 million in his country in an hour. He piles the pressure on the Chief Justice, adding, now I just think you don't want to do that. Earl Warren succumbs to the president's emotional blackmail and accepts the job. The Warren Commission is established. Right from the outset, it seems clear that the Warren Commission's brief is to find that there was no conspiracy, whether communist or otherwise, and that Lee Harvey Oswald was acting on his own when he killed President Kennedy. And that is precisely what the commission will find when it delivers its report in September 1964. To summarize the report's 888 pages, Oswald is the lone gunman. He fired three shots from a six-floor window of the Texas School Book Depository where he worked. His motivation is not clear. All that matters is that no other gunman was involved. No other shots were fired from anywhere else, and certainly not from the grassy knoll. Jack Ruby, the man who killed Oswald, was also acting on his own. No one put him up to it. His mafia connections have no bearing on the case. The two men were not known to each other before Ruby shot Oswald. For the commission's findings to be true requires Oswald to be an exceptional marksman. Each of his three shots, fired in rapid sequence on a second-hand rifle, hits its target. This is not impossible. Oswald was a former Marine who had received sniper training but the commission's report also requires one of his bullets to have penetrated both President Kennedy and Governor Colony in three places, chest, wrist, and thigh. This is the so-called single bullet theory that many will strain to believe, but forensics experts will insist that it's not impossible. Bullets do not always behave how laypeople expect them to. In the absence of a criminal trial, the Warren Commission is meant to be the official verdict on the murder of JFK. But if the idea is that it will draw a line under the wild speculation that so disturbed President Johnson, that hope is sorely disappointed. It's not just the usual suspects. 
the cranks and conspiracy theorists, who find it hard to accept the Warren Commission's findings. The Attorney General, Robert Kennedy, is highly skeptical, at least in private. In public, he backs the commission. John McCone, the CIA director who gave his word to Bobby that the CIA had nothing to do with his brother's death, is unconvinced by the lone gunman verdict. In his view, there had to be a second shooter involved. Even some of the lawyers who served as investigators to the commission will later question its findings, claiming that crucial evidence was kept from them by the CIA and the FBI. Evidence which, if they'd had it, may have led to a completely different conclusion. Perhaps the commission's most intriguing critic is President Richard Nixon, who will one day dub it, the biggest hoax ever perpetrated. Despite the Warren Commission's findings, rumors of a communist plot linger. Two details from Lee Harvey Oswald's life lend weight to them. The first is that in 1959, at the age of 20, Oswald defected to the Soviet Union for what he called political reasons. Although he served as a private in the U.S. Marines, Oswald describes himself as a communist. He even taught himself to speak basic Russian. It seems Oswald believed himself to be in possession of secret intelligence that would be valuable to the Soviet authorities. He must have been disappointed when they rewarded his offer with suspicion. But eventually, his application is accepted. He is given an apartment and a job at an electronics factory in Minsk. The question is, could he have been recruited by the KGB to assassinate Kennedy during his spell in Russia? There is no evidence to support this. But when has a lack of evidence ever stood in the way of a good conspiracy theory? After three years, Oswald has had enough of Russia and wants to come back to the U.S. By now, he has a Russian wife, Marina, and a baby, June. There are some who argue that, in fact, Oswald was sent to Russia by the CIA, who are running him as a double agent. They point out that on his return, he faces no charges for his attempt to share classified secrets with a foreign state. If this theory is true... It means that Oswald was on the CIA's radar long before he shot the president. For some, this makes it all the more likely that the agency was using him in a secret plan to kill Kennedy. At the very least, it may give the CIA motive to conceal embarrassing links to the presidential assassin. There's a second incident in Oswald's life that may have a bearing on whether or not he acted alone. In September 1963, just two months before President Kennedy is shot, Oswald travels to Mexico City. There, he visits both the Russian and the Cuban embassies to apply for a Cuban visa. For some reason, he has turned down. There is much that is uncertain about Oswald's time in Mexico, but it seems that the CIA were aware of it and had him under surveillance. Oswald's presence at the Russian embassy in Mexico should have rung alarm bells. According to the CIA's own information, that embassy was the KGB's base for what was known as wet operations, intelligence jargon for assassinations. The CIA also had information that while he was there, Oswald had a brief relationship with a Mexican woman called Silvia Duran. Duran worked at the Cuban embassy and was known to have pro-Castro sympathies. Was she a honey trap to lure Oswald into carrying out a Cuban plot to assassinate President Kennedy? That's pure speculation, of course. However, the real significance of the affair is that both the CIA and the FBI knew about it. Which again proves that Oswald was on the intelligence services radar before the attack in Dallas. 
the CIA kept this information from the Warren Commission investigating President Kennedy's assassination. Once again, it's either proof of their complicity in JFK's murder or an attempt to cover up their failure to prevent it. The former is horrifying. The latter is bad enough. There is another possibility. Remember President Johnson's dire warnings about the nuclear holocaust that would ensue if word got out that communist Cuba was behind the assassination? Perhaps the CIA suppressed the evidence of Oswald's Cuban connections to keep America out of a catastrophic war. The CIA certainly had something to hide, as their lack of transparency with the Warren Commission proves. But does this mean that the allegations made by former CIA operative E. Howard Hunt are true? In 2003, Hunt provides his son Saint with a list of names, men he says conspired to murder President Kennedy. The list includes several of his former CIA colleagues, Cord Meyer, Bill Harvey, David Morales, David Atlee Phillips, and Frank Sturgis. But perhaps the most intriguing name on the list is that of the man Hunt claims is the instigator and main beneficiary of the plot, a man indicated only by his initials, L.B.J. Lyndon Baines Johnson, Kennedy's vice president who was hurriedly sworn in after JFK's death is announced to a shocked world. What, if any, is the evidence for this outrageous accusation? As you might expect by now, hard proof is lacking. Instead, we have speculation piled on theory. It goes something like this. On October 11, 1963, President Kennedy signs National Security Action Memorandum Number 263 to withdraw 1,000 American military personnel from Vietnam by the end of the year. One of President Johnson's first acts on taking office is to reverse that order. In so doing, he begins America's march to war in Vietnam, which his predecessor had been desperate to avoid. The argument is that Johnson represents the interests of the Army, the Pentagon, the CIA, the arms industry, the faceless grouping President Eisenhower once called the military-industrial complex. These are the hawks who stand to profit from America's presence in Vietnam, no matter how many American servicemen or Vietnamese civilians must die. According to this thesis, Kennedy stood in the way of their militarist objectives and so had to go. The allegedly corrupt Johnson will be more biddable, as his immediate reversal of Kennedy's order shows. Coupled with this is the rumor that Kennedy intends to drop Johnson from the ticket for 1964, making the chance of him ever becoming president even more remote. The human mind looks for patterns and sees conspiracies. The bottom line is there is no proof of any of this. But there is proof that the CIA hid crucial evidence from the Warren Commission. Does this mean they were using Oswald in their own secret plot to kill the president? Or is it simply that they were trying to hide evidence of their own failure to prevent the murder of JFK? Either way, there's a cover-up. But there's a huge difference between a conspiracy to murder the president and a few intelligence officers suppressing evidence that they dropped the ball. If the former is true, it's a secret coup d'etat, a bid to replace one leader with another. If you buy this theory, then their plot succeeded perfectly. But if the cover-up is simply to deflect blame for intelligence failures, why does Howard Hunt write the letters LBJ at the head of his list of conspirators? In 2003, Hunt believes he is dying. 
he has nothing to lose in pointing the finger at Johnson, who is long dead. He can even afford to implicate himself a little in the plot, though he is careful to distance himself from playing any active role. By now, the Kennedy conspiracy industry is big business. Hunt is a colorful figure, once close to many of those whose names repeatedly come up in conspiracy theory circles. He is even suspected by some of being in Dallas on the day JFK was shot. Someone, somewhere, would pay good money for his story. Hadn't Kevin Costner once offered him $5 million for everything he knew about who really killed JFK? Now believing himself close to death, it's true that Hunt has nothing to gain from making his account public. But his son does. Saint could turn the explosive information his father is giving him into a best-selling book, or at least sell it to a news organization or film company. Maybe he could get back on the phone to Costner. It's possible E. Howard Hunt sees this as his last chance to set the record straight and unburden himself. Alternatively, perhaps, he thinks of it as a gift to his son, a legacy of a kind. Saint is all set up to take the Kennedy conspiracy industry by storm. The information he possesses is straight from the horse's mouth. Whether it's true or not, doesn't matter. Let's not forget that Hunt's second career was as a novelist. And he never did get round to writing that thriller about the Kennedy assassination. Hey again, listeners. Just a reminder that Deathbed Confessions will be off next week for the Thanksgiving holiday. We'll see you back here on December 1st. Thanks for listening. Next time on Deathbed Confessions. We meet Tur Hepso, a Norwegian oil rig worker who, on his deathbed, claimed to have murdered not one, but two women decades earlier. He tells hospital staff that not only is he a murderer, but that another man has paid the price for his crimes. But was Hepso's confession genuine? Could it be a figment of imagination from a confused mind, driven to distraction by medication and pain? Or was this a last-ditch attempt to clear his conscience before he met his maker, opening a door to a horrific miscarriage of justice that saw an innocent man spend his life behind bars? Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser, executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes, developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast, series produced by Addison Nugent, written by Roger Morris, supervising editor Ben Bishop, music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley, sound design by Matias Torresole, sound supervisor Tom Pink, edited by Rob Plummer, mix master by Kean Ryan Morgan, 